0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to Face to Face.
0: Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water
2: wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. So welcome to Face to Face once again at 3.26 here on a beautiful uh, sunny uh, afternoon. It's about time and uh, we're just moving into spring, it seems to me, and we've got a guest with us today, former Executive Director of Canada Without Poverty, Rob Rayner. Thanks for joining us, Rob.
2: Thank you very much, David. I'm looking forward to it.
1: So Rob's got about 20 years of experience in in not-profit leadership. He's got... uh, the gift of the gab and that is not meant to be uh, used in a pejorative uh, sense at all, Rob. Um, Rob and I met uh, about a, about six weeks ago. I reached out to him, we had breakfast it was uh, we, we had a wonderful time and it was one of those meetings where I, I, I don't know if you would agree or not Rob, but I felt like we could have easily spent the rest of the day together just talking about issues and and uh, maybe not actually coming to any resolutions but at least at least starting to uh, go beyond scratching the surface.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I felt the same way, and I, w- I would say we could probably spend a, a better part of a, a really great weekend just kind of going through a whole bunch of topics. Um, you know, because I think we both recognize that there's 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 incredible complexity uh, often behind the issues of the day. At the same time, um, by getting to to core values, uh, we can reduce some of that complexity to 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 a level of simplicity, which I think is helpful. And we were just kind of scratching the surface on on a, on a range of topics, but uh, it was nice to to feel a sense of common yes common cause common around cause. those things yeah
1: yeah it's always helpful to find out that there are others that are sort of waving the
2: same flag Mm-hmm. and looking beyond the surface of things, which I think we very, very much have to do when we look at issues such as you know, the one that we 're going to be talking about here momentarily
1: so you want to um you believe income security is a human right, you want to reframe poverty, you want to talk about human rights, and you know, just before we actually hit the record button, we were talking a little bit about where you're heading. You're going to be speaking at a conference coming up soon, I think on the East Coast, and you said, you know, I I start to look at this, I start to dig a little bit deeper, and I say, oh my God, what what kind of a country are we living in? Can can you talk a little bit more about that, Rob?
2: Yeah, well, um, I, I don't have to go more than... Uh, a half a kilometer at most out of my apartment here in Ottawa before I'll come across a person who is begging for their existence, um, begging for help, uh, panhandling, um, and that's how I got involved in the poverty issue hmm. back in 2006. As I had uh, come to Ottawa in 2004 from a small town, very small town in New Brunswick, uh, where poverty exists, but but does so uh, in a more invisible way. You don't tend to see people panhandling on, in very small towns. Right. In fact, the people who are panhandling, who represent the most marginalized, the most desperate people in our society, tend to migrate to bigger centers. So um, I've actually had, I guess, the, the, the good fortune of not having to live in a city or not having lived in a city for some time when I was living in New Brunswick. Uh, but when I came to Ottawa in uh, in 2004, um, really came face-to-face with this phenomenon of 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 homelessness and panhandling uh, on big on the on the streets of a big city in mm-hmm. a very very wealthy country and uh, you also don't have to go more than 50, 50 meters you know from my my apartment to encounter you know big big time wealth uh, that exists here right. in Ottawa so, right. so so they the two things exist side by side and, and you know what struck me as i got the opportunity to work on the poverty issue is that there were relatively few Seem to be relatively few individuals and organizations who are really acting on it from a human rights point of view. And I,
0: through my experience
2: at Canada Poverty, I became exposed to the the approach and the arguments for tackling poverty as a human rights issue, and it really has resonated with me. And I'm going to carry it with it with me the rest of my life. Um, and I, you know, I just believe very, very deeply that that, that response. Have, the response probably has to come from a very strongly grounded human rights framework. So, so I want
1: to I, I want to get back to that in a second. I want to talk about the framework. I want to talk about the lens. Can you can you, uh, you know, from your own experience, you know, you talked about the gap. I mean, I've certainly seen the gap in the global south. I've seen it here in the streets of Toronto. I've seen it in in Oakville. I mean, it's, you know, the richest place in Canada. Can you define poverty? Uh, with Canadian poverty, is there such a thing, or do we talk about it? You know, I know Jeffrey Sachs in the End of Poverty talks about moderate, relative, and extreme. How would you right. uh, position it?
2: Yeah, well, it is a, it is a, it is on a spectrum. I, I, uh, the spectrum. It's the in 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 the in the field of poverty. You know, working on poverty issues, we we, we encounter these phrases of relative poverty and absolute poverty. Right, um, and it it is hard to know where that change. Kicks in, but obviously, a person who is star- literally starving to death, as some people are in our world, um, is in a situation of of of, of absolute deep poverty. Um, uh, people who are not starving to death, but are who are having their health seriously compromised by their relative deprivation of of uh, you know uh, of basic needs. Um, are dying a slower death, mm. and one you know one thing we know about poverty in Canada is that the poor do tend to live shorter lives. Um, it's been documented in in the city of Hamilton uh, that people living in the lowest income neighborhoods uh, have life average lifespans, uh, you know, roughly twenty years shorter than that. Uh, no, don't quote me on the twenty years. That do have shorter lifespans right. than those in the higher income neighborhoods. So this has been documented by by science um, and it also you know makes uh, appeals to our common sense if people have poor nutrition uh, greater stress um, uh, they are going to you know more more than likely or not are going to have shorter lifespans than those who don't don't have those uh, those problems so so um, uh, so the absolute and the relative uh, concepts are on a on a spectrum um, but I think what's 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 really most important is to look at, at, at individuals that we see in our, in our daily lives, that we encounter, um, and to recognize that some people are, are in a situation of much, much, much greater struggle than, than others just to meet their basic needs. Uh, so in my trip to PEI next week, um, in advance of that I've interviewed uh, seven low-income women, um, and it turned out that they were all. All, all of my interviews turned out to be to be uh, women. I, I was hoping to have a bit of a mix of men and women, but the ones who were lined up ultimately turned out to be hmm. women. And uh, each one of them had uh, an incredible story right. of just trying to survive their uh, from from day to day, week to week, getting having their basic needs met. And they're they're not. None of them are successful in that regard. All of them are are having to compromise their lives in some pretty serious ways uh, that really come back to to the health uh, uh, challenge uh, sure. inadequate nutrition inadequate housing um the stress um, not being able to afford uh, certain basic needs that many other people in Canada are able to to, to afford and may not even think about uh, because they're, they're they're so comfortably well off that uh, it doesn't cross their mind that there are some people in this country who actually have to make a decision whether or not they're going to buy fresh vegetables or, right. um, or uh, will forego a transit pass in favor of food or vice versa. Uh, they'll forego food in favor of a transit pass. There are people experiencing this level of stressful decision-making because they simply do not have... Enough resources to meet their basic needs. Do you think so? They are, they are, if you will, they are dying a slower death. Dying a slower death. Yeah. Yeah. What, one one person actually made that kind of comment when she referred to hmm. what it's like to be on social assistance. She, she said it's it's like a form of slow slow death. Wow. Um, yeah. So.
1: Well, it's the kind of thing. It seems to me that until you walk in somebody's shoes, until you actually get down in the middle of it, there's really no way to know. And I've often wondered with respect to, you know, my focus for many years has been international development. And so I get over into a situation and I say, wow, if I could only get some, some key decision makers here in the community with me, the difference it could make. You know, right. um, they'll, they'll get to see the faces of the children. They'll get to see the faces of the abused women. They'll get to see the faces of the men who, who have no work and so on and so on. And it, that's going to make all the difference. And, uh, I often wonder if, if that is true and I wonder if it's true with Canadian poverty as well sometimes, cause I, I've certainly heard, and here's the question, do you think that we don't feel as a culture that poverty exists in Canada?
2: Um, I think that view is fairly widespread. Um, I don't know if there's been a a survey done on (laughs) that.
1: Yeah, I don't know that there has either. It would be helpful
2: for sure. Uh, I I think that, well, I would say uh, definitively that 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 attitude does exist in Canada. How widespread it is, I don't know. I mean, there's been an explosion of anti-poverty work across Canada uh, over over the past, you know, decade or two, there's mm-hmm. anti-poverty groups found in almost every community. They may not even call themselves that. They they might just simply be, you know, soup kitchens, soup, soup kitchens and food banks and so forth, and so forth without right. they're labeling themselves as an, an anti-poverty group, but uh, there's certainly a, a level of consciousness in every community. And also we see quite commonly, uh, you know, uh news stories where a given politician has, you know, gone into a a shelter for the day or uh, a soup kitchen is helping, you know, distribute food or, or clothing or whatever it is. And certain some politicians have taken up certain challenges that have been an issue to them to try to live on a, you know, a welfare allowance for for a month, kind of a thing. So these kinds of things have been done. Even our prime minister Stephen Harper, I believe, has been photographed, you know, uh, working at. A kitchen, you know, for for a few minutes or something in a in a shelter. <laughs> um,
1: I think I need to ask you a couple more questions about that. I d- I didn't sense a tone there at all, Rob, but I did sense an interesting choice of words.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's yeah. But, Even Stephen Harper for a few minutes. Yeah, that's funny. Well,
2: yeah. I mean, because uh, you know, speaking frankly, his government has been pretty tone deaf on this issue mm-hmm. since they came to power. And in my experience in Canada with a party where we tried to. You know, try to bring the issues further to light. Um, it was very difficult with this particular government. And I say this in a completely nonpartisan way because we, you know, we in the anti poverty movement would be thrilled and delighted to see a government of any stripe um, recognize poverty for what it is and make much more concerted efforts to deal with it in a much more holistic way. Right. Uh, we, you know, I, I just didn't see that at the time that I was with Canada on Poverty. I saw it very, you know, in fairness, I didn't see it from, from many other governments as well. Um, although on the on the positive side in Canada, uh, uh, up until the, I left at the end of January, my position at uh, Canada Without Poverty, but um, I believe... Um, Eight of the ten provinces had committed to having an anti-poverty strategy of some kind, and, and a number of provinces have strategies in place, although they are they tend to be very weak. Right. Um, and I think all three of the uh, northern territories either have or have pledged to bring in an anti-poverty strategy of some kind. So, you know, the consciousness has reached you know fairly fairly widely in our society, and we have we, we do have a number of politicians who take this issue very seriously. But still, I don't think the response has come uh, has come to a foundation on human rights. And by that, I, I guess I can sort of go a bit further in saying that the person who does um, become sensitized to poverty, even if they have never experienced themselves, um, you know, quite naturally, the response is is going to be coming from a place of empathy, which is good. We, you know, empathy has to be there, um, and so people empathizing with. What it must be like for someone mm-hmm. to have to uh, make very, very difficult daily decisions about how they're going to meet their basic needs, and and knowing all 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 along that they're not going to be successful, they are going to have to forego something because that is the reality for people in poverty in Canada if they're on social assistance, which is the so-called you know program of last resort. There isn't a there. There is hardly a social social assistance program in Canada uh, anywhere that is sufficient to meet a person's basic needs. Uh, in Prince Edward Island, I'm not sure of the exact level of, of um, monetary assistance that's given, but but my sense is, is that at best it, it comes to about fifty to sixty percent of what the person really needs to receive.
1: Rob, who so, does, who decides what those you know? I don't want to go all philosophical on you, but who decides what those basic needs are? Is that is that something that's you know purely subjective? Is that an independent kind of a thing? Or is that actually laid out?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, it is a question that um, has... There have been attempts to answer that question in Canada and elsewhere, what constitutes basic needs. Um, I, again, I don't, have, um, I don't have a survey I necessarily can, can point to there. Um, but one of the most interesting tools or helpful tools in this, in this regard is something called the deprivation index, um, and Ontario, I believe, is the only uh, province that has or had, I'm not even sure if it's still being used in relation to Ontario's poverty reduction strategy, um, but Ontario, um, through some work of some NGOs, supported by uh, by the Ontario government, the current Ontario government, did come up with a deprivation index, which is a list of items that are considered to be essential to meet basic needs. and. A person is considered to be in a situation of deprivation if they have to forego, you know, one or two or more of those items. Um, and I like that that idea of mm-hmm. coming up with an actual list that has broad support, broad agreement, and then you know, objectively evaluating what number or what percentage of citizens or families or households have to forego one or more of those items on the list.
1: I remember, um, I remember talking to Dennis Hallett from Make Poverty History some time back, and, and, and we were talking about Oakville, and Oakville being the richest place in Canada, and he said typically, you know, in those kinds of communities, people that are not necessarily getting their basic needs are, met, are, are being ignored. Um, you know, mm-hmm. tone, de- tone deaf was the phrase he used with respect to the conservatives. I think a lot of us are tone deaf when it comes to these kinds of issues, it seems to me. But, oh, yes. But oh, especially yes. No in a question. rich community, because people say, what do you mean there's poverty in Oakville? And so, I mean, I, I, I've had people uh, level that uh, criticism at me before. You know, well, David, mm-hmm. it's just social poverty. They can't take their kids to ballet. It's it's not actually, we're not actually talking about basic needs here.
2: Right, right. Yeah, so I mean, the stratification of our society into, um, into uh, income categories where we've got people who are extremely well-off, we have people who are well-off, we have people who are doing okay, not necessarily too concerned. We have people who are who are uh, currently well off but concerned about their economic prospects. We have people who are not well off and extremely concerned about their economic prospects. And then we have people who are who are desperate. Um, yes. and every waking moment represents a moment of of, of stress and, mm. and worry about how they mm-hmm. are going to pay this bill, hmm. uh, take care of this Need for their child and so forth, because they they simply know they they do not have enough income coming through the door, nor nor any any reasonable expectation that that situation is going to change. Um, and uh, this is where we get into the complexity of the issue, because we have we have problems in our labor market, we have problems in our in our social security system, um, and it, when people find themselves in that lower end of the income spectrum. Uh, they may become trapped there. They may feel trapped. They may feel completely helpless and and hopeless to to ever escape it, uh, because they see the barriers that are in front of them. Right. Um, and it's it's not helpful to for a person to have the attitude, well, you know, a person can kind of will themselves out of these situations. Well, that's not necessarily so. If you've got certain disabilities or um, have, have various barriers in front of you that are either barriers upon you into, you know, your your physical being or your or your mental being, uh, or there are barriers that society has put up. Sure. Uh, you know, as an example, on Prince Edward Island, um, the first woman I spoke with, a uh, very courageous, young, single mother, she's in her, I think she's in her early 30s, she has a child who's eight years old and she re- recently made national news in, in registering her own sort of one-woman protest on the recent changes to the employment insurance system. She's, you know, she's drawing insur- employment insurance right now and has m- multiple times in the community that she lives in, which is a, a smaller community um, out, well outside of Charlottetown. Uh, employment is just not something that is uh, easily found, and mm-hmm. it's a much more seasonal economy, um, And what she was hoping to do was go on to uh, be able to pursue some accreditation in uh, home care, uh, where she's done some work in that area before, um, and that kind of work is available to her, but she does need to get some accreditation, so she's not going into that work uh, without certain credentials. Um, And so there's a program that she would like to be able to access that uh, she could take for I forget what it is. I think it was nine months or so, but um, the training program, and there's a cost to it, um, but she can't afford to go off social assistance to take that program and she can't remain on social assistance while she's on that program. You would think that the PEI government would want to support a young woman like this um, in taking a, a program that will give her some credentials that will allow her then to gain employment so she can come off social assistance you'd think any government would want to support that and, and have a framework in place that allows a person to continue to receive uh, income support while they're pursuing training, mm-hmm. as opposed to going off that income support and uh, either having to go, go into further debt, you know, taking out a loan and so forth. So you know, that, that, to me, is an example of a structural problem in, right. in the way that we're supporting our fellow citizens. And it, it, it's a problem that could be could well be solved, but beyond the, the immediacy of, of it is this whole question of, of the human right that this woman has to a basic level of social security, as well as a, a right to to education. And uh, I suppose we'll get shortly in the conversation to what that really means to, to ground the response to poverty in a human rights framework. If we do that, um, we're, we're you know it's, I think it, uh, we'll we'll see. M- much uh, a much uh, stronger, um, we'll see many, uh, much more evidence of, of progress on this issue right. than we ever have to date. I mean, here in Ottawa, uh, I'll just close off this little segment here by saying that here in Ottawa, one of the things that really struck me when I started working on the poverty issue is we have a shelter here in Ottawa that has, ha- had, or probably still has, I haven't been over there in a little while, a banner over its door that says, serving the homeless for 106 years. Uh, now we're probably up to about 112 years since that banner uh, first went up, I guess. But um, you know, is that a is that a success story? Or is that a, a a story of failure that we, right. we you know we have homelessness in this country for for, for over a century? We're into the second century of <laughs> serving the homeless. Why are we serving the homeless at all? We shouldn't have a single person in this country. Right. And I, you know, I know that the work of that shelter is stellar in terms of, you know, the kind of support they provide to uh, the, the people that they that they that come through the doors there. But a um, the human rights framework would allow us to eliminate homelessness. It would allow us to eliminate poverty in our time. And unless we, as a society, get around to um, making a response from a human rights framework. I'm not confident at all that we're going to see any real progress on this issue.
1: So so I want to come back to the whole notion of solving extreme poverty versus solving poverty, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about human rights, and, you know, 1948 was a big year for human rights, um, mm-hmm. the Universal Declaration and so on. I mean, can you say that they didn't exist before then, or... Um, I mean, I guess I, what I'm getting at is, can you tell us a little bit more about that history and 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 how we found ourselves in 1948? And and, sure. and and you comment in your paper um, that uh, you shared with me, and maybe we can even make it available online. Income security as a human right that you gave at um, a workshop at the Basic Income Earth Network in 2009. You you know you say that it's you know pretty new.
2: It's really. very very new. Um, yeah, in the uh, in the talk that I gave. Uh, back in 2009, on income security as a human right, and I, I sort of mirrored uh, much of that content in, in a couple of presentations a year later out, out in Alberta. Um, yeah, the, I mean the concept of human rights is very, very recent in our evolutionary history. Human human beings in our sort of current uh, or in our in our in our modernized form, as, as we go back about 200,000 years, and um the first articulation of anything approaching a human right didn't happen until about 1215 uh, in the uh, in the magna carta or what's known as the great charter in english and um this this required uh, the king king john of england at the time he proclaimed certain rights that were uh, would, would pertain to what were called freemen and um this uh, was the first known articulation of anything approaching a human right and a human right simply is something that exists, if you will, as like a contract between human beings. Um, right. There are rights holders and the and people who have to honor those rights are the duty bearers um, then there it took quite a while for um, many more many more centuries to pass before we we, we, we came around to some more mature articulation of exactly what are human rights and what, what types of rights do people have. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 was the, the first global articulation um, amongst the, uh, uh, the community of nations uh, as to a set of rights that everybody has by virtue of being human. And in uh, those uh, cate- cate- uh, catalog of rights are you know the right to food, the right to housing, uh, the right to Social Security, uh, the right to an adequate standard of living um, sufficient for a person's health, and other forms of what are known as now as economic and social rights. So it was a, it was a breakthrough document, and, um, you know, we're now, what, going on uh, close to 70 years. It'll be 70 years in uh, five years, was uh, 65 years along, along now. And, um, you know, some of those rights have... Come further to the forefront, and others are, are lagging a bit in terms of the recognition. And you know, certainly for, for for a country like Canada, we are we are still very much in the early days of even really recognizing, let alone living up to many of mm-hmm. many of the rights that we signed onto as a country back in 1948. However, it does represent a, a milestone moment, and um, it's going to take it's probably going to take uh, a couple more generations before those rights are given the fullest recognition that they ought to be given. And it's going to require, you know, some human rights education and um, a maturation of our society. I, you th- I, I th- I, yeah, go ahead.
1: Rob, do you, th- you know, you talked about maturation, you talked about education and so on. And I've, I've spoken about it before many times to my class and to, to uh, you know, public talks that I've given and so on, and probably on a recent podcast. But Do you you think education is the silver bullet here in some regards? You know, my children are five and seven. They're growing up in a home that's, you know, we're making them aware of these issues, these concerns, these, you know, we, we try to have pretty mature dialogues with them already at their age. And so is, is that where the hope is to be found? You know, my son loves to recycle. I don't. Um, um, I do it, I do it because I think I should. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I feel obligated and I'd rather do something else, but he, he sees, he, it's almost as if he gets some pleasure in it. Well, I mean, dad, what do you mean you're going to throw that in the garbage? So uh, can we expect that same thing out of our kids and the next generation and the next generation
2: after that, that,
1: that they're going well, to, I you think know, think take it to the next level?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think education is critical. It, it's it's through education, either formal or informal, that a person's mind becomes expanded, um, and you know we, we begin to see see horizons. We we see we see the the perspectives that come across the you know the the, the color spectrum. Um, we have to overcome our ignorance, and and I think our society is deeply ignorant when it comes to the question of human rights. We we've all heard the phrase. We know that people have certain rights. If you're arrested, probably the first question is, well, what rights do I have if I'm arrested? Uh, nice. Which is an interesting question unto itself. Um, but we probably don't do a very good job yet uh, in bringing uh, human rights into a more integral way into our educational system. I, I, I believe young children can begin to grasp these concepts uh, you know, at, at quite an early age, and at the very least should it be exposed to them. And, and no, after, I, after, I would agree, you know, yeah. As, you know, they should be themselves be asking questions about what human rights mean. Um, we teach children, I mean, a big issue now is bullying. And, you know, bullying represents an affront of human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, a person has the right not to be bullied. They have a right not to be physically struck. They have the right not to be, if you will, verbally struck. Uh, and that's what bullying largely represents. It's a, it's a verbal striking. It's an emotional striking of another person's psyche. And obviously it leads, can lead to some fatal consequences. Um, so the you know the, the language of human rights uh, surrounds concepts like bullying very very well. In fact, there's an opportunity in the whole bullying uh, field if you will if that's the right way to frame it the response to bullying could be framed uh, in a a broader way uh, around a conversation of human rights. So I think it's vital that our educational systems, formal educational systems, and within households at the dinner table, Mm-hmm. Have conversations about about human rights. Yeah, the distinction
1: between formal and informal, I think, is essential. I remember, I remember being in uh, Cambodia a few years back and talking to uh, a, a, government, a U.S. government official who said that Camb- Cambodia's problems uh, can't be solved. You know, by or, or, or would easily be solved by about a hundred funerals or, 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 or a few less. So, in other words, you know, there's this group of people that are still. Working within a certain framework that is antiquated, and once we get rid of that, we're going to be okay. Is that what we're talking about with regard to human rights? I mean, is it just time? I mean, or is it is it is it something that we're looking? You know, is it way way down the road because of the systemic nature of, of something so complex?
2: Um, I, I I think I think the honest answer to that is we are we are still living in an era we're, we're in the in the twenty first century, but in many ways we're still kind of living with with 18th century and 19th century mindsets. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, uh, Certainly when I when I think of the the kinds of the the kind of social security system we we still have, I I think it's very much a twentieth twentieth century, if not even a nineteenth century, reflective twentieth or nineteenth century mindset. I think, I think we're several generations yet away from a fuller realization of human rights. We may be, we may be 100, 200, even 300 years away from a fuller realization of 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 human rights, and it's you know it's one of the I think it's one of the tragedies of, of being a human being uh, who's conscious of these things is we can see the solution. <laughs> but the solution may not come at all in our lifetimes. <laughs> That's you know? right. That's pretty it, funny. I
1: was I teach on Tuesdays, and today is Tuesday, and I was talking to a couple of my students about that very same thing. I said I don't know that we're going to see it in our in our lifetimes together, but it's uh, it's 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 something that we need to at least keep working towards if we you know truly believe that change is incremental.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a fantastic book, which I will recommend to anybody who's listening to this, um, called Inventing Human Rights A uh, History, by an American uh, historian named Lynn Hunt. And she has a, a wonderful phrase in there, which I incorporate into my paper, and I'll just quote it here. It says, human rights only become meaningful when they gain political content. They are rights that require active participation from those who hold them. And I, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that idea, mm-hmm. um, uh, we can we can put human rights down in a in, in a uni- Universal Declaration and other types of documents, but unless we really seize seize them yes. and and hold them close to our daily life and put them into practice, they they end up just being empty words. Yeah. Um, and we end up with situations of of abuse all over well, all over the world all all through our communities where people well haven't are
1: you not just and haven't you just punctured the inefficacy of say the u n security- council for instance we can we can talk about these say we can write them down we can even sign certain agreements, but it doesn't mean we're going to necessarily follow through
2: no that that is correct um in 1948, uh, these human rights were put down in a charter, and you know it's apparently become one of the world's most translated documents, and so forth. So you know the the idea of these human rights has spread from that time. But it's it's really still only very recently that even within the UN system that human rights are are get, being given um, broader attention. Uh, actually, as we speak. Um, uh, colleagues of mine from Canada, Without Poverty, uh, have recently been in Geneva to attend and, and participate in what's known as the Universal Periodic Review, uh, hmm. or UPR, which is the UN's relatively new, rec- new and recent um, system for having the performance of nations with respect to human rights evaluated uh, by by other member states. So it's a peer review process. Right by which given states hold up each other to shining a light on how they are doing on, in performing on human rights issues, from political rights and civil rights to economic and social rights and cultural rights, the five major categories of rights that have been put out there. Um, and so this, this system called the UPR, Universal Period Review, only came into being in the, in the past uh, 10 years. Wow.
1: It just and, showed um, we're babies.
2: Yeah, we're babies at this. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, and the system itself, you know, has a lot of, I'm sure, has a lot of room for deserved criticism, that it's it's still probably not as thorough as it needs to be, but at the very least, it does represent an attempt to recognize that, uh, you know, human rights uh, need to be evaluated at the highest political levels, and a peer review process, I think, is a pretty good way to do it. So it's, it's, it 's not a weakness of the system that Iran might be evaluating Canada and Canada might be evaluating iran it's in fact it's a strength yes because um, some nations are going to be stronger performers and some are going to be egregious violators. Well, let them both sit in a room and, and talk about right. what's wrong and bring forth the witnesses um, right. and the observers and the advocates from within those countries to talk within countries and across countries about how you know how well or how poorly a nation is doing within its borders. Um, we, do, we do live in a, in a world of, of borders still, um, of countries, you know, de- defining our, our landscape and people having national identities, and so a lot of the conversations on human rights have to take place within, within those geographical boundaries, but they're also happening across geographical boundaries, and that's, that's all positive, um, and, you know Martin Luther King said uh, you know among his many brilliant observations of the human condition he did he did say that the, the arc of human history tends to bend towards justice and i firmly believe that as mm-hmm. well um, and the articulation of human rights the recognition of human rights the defense of human rights are all in that arc and we're still in the on the on the, on the early incline of mm-hmm. that arc mm-hmm.
1: still too <laughs> we, we, still too early to it, tell
2: it's still too early to tell, yeah, yeah, but I, yeah. do have, I do have faith, to the extent that I have any faith at all, I do have faith that as time moves on, um, history will continue to bend towards the arc of justice oh, that's good. and that they, you know, the, the that's human good. rights will gain further and further recognition. We've seen this in, the, in, in Canada with, I would say, fairly broad societal acceptance of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, not, it's not 100% but I think the broad swath of society has come to recognize that uh, we cannot discriminate uh, the practice of marriage based on sexual orientation. It just, that, that represents an abuse of, of a person's right to decide who it is they want to love and associate with for the rest of their lives in a, in a formal marital contract. The United States is now going through a similar um, uh, period of, of giving recognition to, to same sex marriage uh, same sex relationships uh, they 're not quite as far along I think as, as Canada in that regard, but, but it 's coming and it 's a, it's a question that we're, we're never we
1: we 're the liberals to most uh, to many Americans, I should say not to most
2: <laughs> yeah
1: yeah, those crazy liberal Canadians hey I yeah. want is it, to is it charles fried he 's the American lawyer and scholar that you refer to in your your essay. Mm-hmm. yeah i want to i want to uh, believe it or not we're getting close to having to call, call come come to an end uh, but i want i want to end with the quote that you use from him about a violation of a right always being wrong, but before we go there Rob i wondered you know you're you're saying you think that many of us are deeply ignorant when it still comes to these issues of human rights can you i mean and i and i mean this can you can you educate us a little bit what so what does it mean to um you know, look at this through a... What does it mean to live your life through a human rights lens,
0: I guess? Right. So when question. we
2: see a person on the street who's homeless, um, are, you know, whether or not we approach that person or whether or not we help that person or not, probably all of us uh, think, think, oh, isn't that terrible? That person does not have enough to eat. It doesn't have a place to sleep. Um, that, I, I'm hoping that that thought is in everybody's head. So we're sort of empathetic towards that individual, What we don't tend to say, if we don't have the human rights education, the human rights language, the human rights concept, we may not say to ourselves, that person actually has a right to those things. It's because they're human that they have a right to food, they have a right to housing. Um, They have a right to to the other forms of, of human rights that have been articulated in and the Universal Declaration and Subsequent International Human Rights Law. I, I go further in, in, in my paper. I, I, I believe that income security itself has to become a human right. But by that I mean everybody ought to receive, by virtue of their being a human being, they ought to receive a share of whatever wealth exists in the society such that their basic needs can be protected mm-hmm. as best as possible. Without them having to participate in the labor market necessarily, um, just because they are human. Now we do this in a, in, a, in a sense for children. We do this in a sense for for people who are seniors, but we don't tend to do it very well for the entire population. Um, so, uh, moving from uh, a recognition of needs to a recognition of rights is really right. quite it's vital. It's great. Uh, and, and then it would it would what would happen then for the people who are homeless? They would they ought, they need to have a place where they can claim that right. Uh, so if you're if you do not have a place to 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 sleep, you do not have a place to to live, uh, we need to create a society that makes sure that those opportunities are are available for people and that the responsible authorities feel an obli- a better obligation to to make sure that those rights are made real for people
1: so is the reaction then ultimately of somebody walking along the street, oh wow, this is horrible uh, this shouldn't exist here's a couple bucks for you to uh, i'm going to actually get involved or i'm going to write a letter or i'm going to I'm going to assist this person, maybe give them some money, get them to the shelter, but then I'm going to take it to the next step as well. Is that kind of what seeing that situation through a human right lens Well, I think do?
2: ultimately where where we need to get to is that the duty bearers are, in many cases, are our governments. Not all right. the time. Sometimes right. the duty bearers are ourselves or they're the families or whatever. But when you're looking at, at uh, large, broad-scale social security, the duty bearers have to be our government. That's why we form governments in the first place, is to provide a framework by which Certain needs can be provided for um, that can be provided for collectively with governments to administer that. That's basically why governments exist, um, and to to reg- help regulate conduct and right. make sure that there's a, you know these, these kinds of things are taken care of. Um, I think also we need to get to is that our governments at all levels municipal, provincial, federal, territorial uh, need to recognize that they are duty bearers. They they are they are. Uh, they have a responsibility to the human rights that have been articulated, and in their in their construction of laws and programs, to uh, have at the forefront uh, what are we doing to ensure that these rights are being protected, and that would vault issues like homelessness to the forefront. Mm. Uh, why why are we having conversations about about the next generation fighter jets, um, you know, costing multiple billions, or support for, you know, sports stadiums or whatever it happens to be that is clearly of lesser importance than a person's need to eat, a person's need to have decent housing, and so forth. So governments as duty bearers, if they were truly mature, in my view, they would put these rights at the forefront of their daily concerns, their decision-making, and they would say, in our community, in our province, does everyone have a decent place to, to live? Um by that mean I don't I don't mean a you know a a, a, a single single house or whatever or mm-hmm. a, a dwelling of any particular luxury but I do mean though that everyone doesn't does need to have a, a, a decent place to live that, that that's clean that's going to be affordable Um that's going to be adequate for for their health. Um, so,
1: so based on what you said earlier, I mean that sounds top down to me, but I don't get that sense from you at all. So, top down from a duty bearer perspective. But hang on a second. How about from an informal education perspective? How about from a, uh, a you know from, you know just from a very grassroots perspective within the context of families and relationships? What are, how are we actually speaking about these these issues? So, you, you're you're not suggesting it's uh, it's an either or, are you?
2: No, and I would actually uh, caution against even thinking about it in terms of top down and bottom up because, okay, unfortunately, good. I think the phrase top down has become associated with, with government, and and it, it right. kind of plays into that into that anti-government yep. mindset. All government is all government is is a, is, a, is a collection of individuals who've been entrusted with certain responsibilities on behalf of the rest of us, um, and we elect governments, we form governments, we we finance government. It, it's it's as if if we were can imagine the human community being a thousand people and we task a hundred of those people to help look after certain things that are best looked after by those hundred people mm-hmm. uh, maintaining roads or building schools or or administering hospitals or whatever it happens to be mm-hmm. um and entrusting it in a, in a collective way to those individuals to make you know make wise decisions on the use of the resources that are provided to provide the services that we need to be, have provided in a collective way. Uh, it doesn't make sense for us to go individually build our own sidewalks, so we, 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 we give governments some some money so that they can build sidewalks and maintain sidewalks for our, our collective and common youth. Um, so that's really all that government is, and uh, I think what I'm trying to say is that in the a, in a mature view of society, um, citizens would demand of those people who've been entrusted with these responsibilities to ensure that those responsibilities are met uh, for, for these rights that have been articulated. And those people who have been given that responsibility, who, who, who hold elected office or service, public servants, would, would know, uh, would embrace, would value, would love the idea that they are there to ensure that these rights are upheld. So if, if people do not have enough resources to meet their basic needs, well by golly we're going to ensure that those resources are available and there's all kinds of tools that that people public servants and elected officials have at their disposal you know principally through the tax system and the you know there's the distribution i won't even say the redistribution i'll say the distribution of the wealth that's created in our country um interestingly in new brunswick i just read on online that the new brunswick government is restoring income tax uh levels to 2006 before they were cut in a very misguided way um, they followed that advice, and they, they cut income and corporate tax rates, and they've, they've literally starved the government of revenue. Well, now the conservative government, the progressive conservative government in New Brunswick, is reversing those decisions of mm-hmm. seven years ago, mm-hmm. realizing they were a mistake because they mm-hmm. have starved the state of its ability to help meet the basic needs wow. of, of wow. the population. Wow. So you know, they've kind of they've learned a very hard lesson, which when when I was a candidate with poverty, we wrote a letter to the New Brunswick government advising them and urging them not to go through with the tax cuts that they had been had been had been recommended to them by an economist who you know is on the on the um, sort of the free market end of, end of the spectrum. Um, so you know governments have to have the resources available to yes. to allocate to ensure that that a range of of needs and a range of rights are going to be protected. Um, and that's really all that governments are, are there to do. And, it's a, it's
1: a, the top down, bottom up, uh, doing away with that distinction is probably actually really helpful. It's uh, you're you're I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and it, it's the same
2: when we talk about you know right right wing and left wing these, these yes. concepts yeah. these concepts box us in.
1: Well, it's all about polarization, right? And it immediately mm-hmm. it immediately positions you in an either or
2: uh,
1: uh, framework. And I just I I've got no time for that. It's it's yeah. I don't know that it's ever either or actually. And that kind of positions itself in, into this mathematical quantifiable universe that, frankly, most of us don't live in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you
2: know. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we we're we're constantly existing in. <laughs> Pardon the phrase, shades of gray. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we we, we constantly are, and uh, there are some things which are clearly right and clearly wrong. Uh, But I I think the the polarization of our debates, our dialogue, our politics, these things are not helping us at all. Uh, We have to fight back against attempts to put things in sort of simplistic terms this way, and we have to remain very open to learning and. Um, having conversations with people who may not see the issues quite the same way that we do and may never ever see the issues quite the same way. But I think there is common ground. Interestingly, the whole subject of income security, and this idea of a basic income or guaranteed income, has has had appeal to people who would identify themselves as being you know, right-leaning or left-leaning, or others, others might have identified them in, in, in that way. It's interesting to me that the concept has received support from from either end of the spectrum and right. through the middle of the spectrum. And in Canada, you know, Senator Hugh Siegel, who's the progressive conservative senator of uh, former Chief of Staff to Brian Mulroney, uh, and a brilliant guy, he's, he's probably our leading political proponent of a basic income. And I would say Senator Siegel is, is uh, you know, from my conversation with him, would be, I think, basically, his argument does rest, ultimately, on a human rights right. Right. Uh, foundation uh more so than a charitable kind of foundation. And on the you know on the more on more liberal end of the spectrum people like you know the economist the late uh, John Kenneth Galbraith was mm-hmm. a proponent of this as well. Um,
1: I would I would love if we can come back to it maybe at another time. I would love to chat with you about how, how do we just get people on the same page with respect to human rights? I find Internationally, when I see the the you know crimes against humanity that are you know rearing their ugly uh, uh, their ugly heads around the world in different countries and in different ways, and you know when you look at things like uh, slavery being worse today than it was in William Wilberforce's time, I mean, what what the hell's going on? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and yeah, yet and yet I'm with you. I'm with uh, K- King and this idea of arcing towards uh, justice. But wow, it just seems like boy we've got a long way to go
2: we do we do and there's 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 a lot of backsliding on uh, you, know, you know on this on this question of, of human rights being recognized and protected and we you know we, we have we unfortunately are living in an era where there are incredibly egregious uh, you know examples of, of of human rights violations everything from you know societal wide rape going on in the congo to mm-hmm. to human trafficking you know sort of nightmarish things that are happening despite Despite the articulation of human rights, right, in the past, right. you know, a couple hundred years or so uh, from the you know French de- you know the French Declaration of Man and the U- U.S. Uh, American you know Declaration of Independence and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other types of articulations of, of what it means to to be to to have a, a decent human existence, and we have these incredible violations going on, but, but the consciousness of these things is. Is is uh, I think very very great uh, in in part because of the communication technologies that allow allow evidences, evidence of right. evidence of abuse to be to spread instantly.
1: one, one of the, one of the world. benefits of global
2: of of globalization. Yes, definitely yeah, one of the yeah, benefits of globalization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, it's still an open ended question. Is ultimately where might this all be leading? You know, yeah, yeah. we we could we could slide into. A global totalitarian kind of that you know existence that 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 is that is not an implausible scenario. Yeah, um, but but equally, if not more plausible, is that um, more and more people are just going to say, you know what, uh, we're we're going to not only let let live and let live, but we're going to do a much better of accepting our responsibilities to each other how, and, b- how, in a peaceful way.
1: To borrow from the seventies phrase, I'm I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I'd yeah. like to
1: see a little bit more of that. Frankly, I really would. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we are seeing plenty of it around around the world, uh, in in many different ways. But but uh, I think a little bit more of that on a regular basis would do us all the world of good. Um, yeah. So, Rob, we've got We got to wrap up. You're so you're hopeful. You sure sound like
2: it. Um, I, I am. I am hopeful. Um, I mean, I think there are still very, very deeply troubling signs. Say on the environmental side and climate change, for example, which is another issue we haven't spoken about here, but I think there's some very deeply troubling things that we all have to be terribly concerned with, yeah. um, because we ultimately are also biological beings living on a on a finite planet, and our, our planet's under tremendous ecological stress. Um, so on that score, I feel less hopeful, but on the, on the social side, I, I feel hopeful because I guess, ultimately, I believe that human beings are good, um, yep. more so than not, and that most people want to be good and do good. And right. with that right. goodwill that's out there, I think there's, there's really not any problem that we can't solve. But it's going to take time. I think a lot of the solutions will come uh, beyond our own lifetimes and will be realized, you know, decades to centuries hence. But... Um, but I think, again, the arc of history is bending in that direction, and that is reason to be hopeful, but at the same time, we, you know, we have a lot of darkness that we have to confront in our you know, in daily existence.
1: Thanks, Rob, for, uh, for uh, joining me here today, and I, I, hope, I hope we can do this again.
2: That would be lovely, David. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, thank you very much.